You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. We're going back to the streaming wars this week. Disney found itself in the crosshairs of famed investor and activist Daniel Loeb, who published a letter arguing it was time to go all in on streaming. The letter didn't exactly sit right with us, and not because we're cozy with management or opposed to activism. We break down the arguments in the letter and use that to get into the real strategic issues facing Disney and Netflix, both of whom face a hard road ahead. For disclosures, I'm long Disney, as I discussed at the beginning of the episode. Akram is long Twitter, which comes up briefly, and is long Netflix, which he opened after this recording. We recorded this on November 3rd, the day of the U.S. election, and if you stick around past the outro, you can catch some bonus impressions. All right, Akram, good morning. We're talking Disney again. I still own my position Disney. It's smaller, and I don't have a super strong view, but we've been following it. We talk at it a dumber different angles. Our jumping point here is that third point, Daniel Loeb released a letter to Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney, arguing that Disney needs to go all in on streaming. And then Akram, you followed up with your own take on Disney, Netflix. And so that's that's where we're going. I wanted to start by talking about Loeb's letter, because I think it is an interesting, you've obviously made your points. I wanted to sort of start with my analysis of it in summary, and then we can kind of go from there. Well, it basically says, look, stop the dividend, put all your money into streaming, really go hard on streaming. Don't worry about theaters. Think about making everything as simple as possible. And if you do that, we can start to see valuations that are similar to Netflix. They talk about a per subscriber valuation as comparable to Netflix. He throws in comparisons to Microsoft and Adobe and their transition from not on-premise, but from selling CDs with software to actually selling via the cloud. And I think it's an interesting argument in the sense that, first of all, the first thing that he's prompting in that letter is that Disney is struggling from a shortage of content and that they need the capital. Like, I, you know, I don't care about the dividend. Suspending, they already paused the dividend in the first half of the year, it's a biannual dividend, not a quarterly dividend. That's not a big deal. Fine, you can save your money for that. But there, I don't get the sense that Disney is running out of money to spend on content. And that's where that that's like a first weird thing, especially when you think about AT&T buying HBO or Time Warner. We've talked about HBO is the premium brand. Disney's pretty premium as well, right? Like they're not a brand that you can argue about the rise of Skywalker yeah, or whatever, they're not, but it, they're not going to produce eight things that nobody ever sees yeah, out of 10. I mean, right. Netflix has this smorgasbord, whereas Disney, like they have the anticipation around them. I'm not a Marvel guy, but they have the anticipation around Marvel. And Antis- I signed back up for Disney plus so that I could watch Mandalorian in real time with everybody else in the world. So I don't, so I guess that's the first point. Like, does it make sense to you that spending is really, that capital is really what Disney needs right now to win the DTC game. No. I mean, you, you saw what, I mean, I agree with you. You, you, you know, you read what, what I had to say. Uh, like, I, 
I think that part of what irked me about that letter, I guess would be the right word choice, irk, is that it just seemed like you, you, you're trying to say, get Disney to, to commit publicly to somehow stoke the share price. I mean, Disney's already been transitioning to having a DTC service in Disney Plus. Several years in the making, they bought BAMTech, you know, and like, you know, Iger launches it. It gets more subs than anybody thought was possible, which we can discuss, which like, you know, was very well managed expectations by him because there was no reason to believe that Disney at where it was priced for Disney Plus. And the barnstorm they did before the launch, as far as Disney originals from the vault, uh, whether it was uh, Aladdin or Lion King remakes and so on and so forth. And they pretty much emptied everything out in a span of 12 months, which usually is spaced out over multiple years. So there was obviously a strong push that like a major driver for them would be a, a rapid onboarding and of user acquisition, at least in the United States and subsequently globally. And it was kind of executed on, like, let's just say, you know, along comes COVID and like, there's obviously things with Disney. So, I mean, that goes back to the point of how, of of what the Disney business looks like, you know, historically. And it's really interesting if you look at like, I mean, you know, I've read almost 30 years of Disney 10Ks and for all the business transforming, whether it was VHS back to uh, studio, back to DVD in terms of the studio, the studio business what we think of as Disney, most people, and even as they added on Marvel and Pixar and Lucas Films in terms of content into, into the IP library, is always been like a, a 15% of, let's call it revenue, and closer to 10% of, of EBITDA, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15 on the lower end of the scale and 15 to 20 on the revenue side. It's, and it's had different mixes, you know, up to like 60% DVD and the box office smaller to the box office as of as of last year, as big as it's ever been, for multiple reasons, both taking market share, rising ticket prices, even though the amount of people going to the box office has been declining for a decade, not more. Well, and as I, I'm just trying, you know, I pulled up as we're talking a Wikipedia list of the content that is the original content on Disney Plus. And it reminds me of when we talk about stocks like Pinterest, where the street isn't as into oh, Pinterest. I know. Well, I, I know. Since I Pinterest sold that, over Twitter. Pinterest over Twitter. I, well, I saw that without getting anything out of it either. So I'm with you on that. But it's like most of it's fo- it's a kids focused platform, and so that doesn't resonate to a guy to stereotype. I I, I assume Loeb is in his fifties probably, and his kids are past the Disney. But like, it's a must have for parents, everything I understand. And then you look at what they've got in the hopper. I don't know how well sourced this is, but they've got a Sandlot series. They've got a few Star Wars things, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, Lizzie McGuire. I'm just looking, or maybe that's already out. I, I, Chip and Dale I saw was in there somewhere. Like it's geared towards kids and it just doesn't seem like, so it, as a first point, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much more energy you're looking for Disney to put into this, right? Like they reorganized their company to make it clearer that they're focused on streaming content. But like, I'm not sure what else you want them to do. They used an example of acquiring the rights to Hamilton. Like, do they want them to start bidding for movies that don't go, you know what I mean? Like, it's unclear how else you would want them to go harder on streaming. The only thing I can think of is the confusion over having Hulu and ESPN plus separate from Disney plus. But again, I'm not, I don't yeah, know. I mean, so it, it is confusing, right? I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to tackle because you do have different moving pieces, the media business and the essentially cable but business it, is driven by ESPN. It seems to me like it's more confusing for analysts and investors than it is for consumers. I think for consumers, it yeah. may not be all that confusing. I don't think anyone's struggling with it, right? So like uh, you have this debate all the time with people and like uh, there, there is a debate that will occur over the data, but there is no real debate. Like when people get excited about subscription because subscription has created multiple expansion and you can literally see the definition of FOMO in the market and late cycle behavior. When a guy compares Disney, a guy as respected as Loeb and, and historically successful, puts out a letter that starts out with like, you know, Microsoft and, and Adobe 
and saying these two are facing a, a, a challenging transition and they committed to it. And look at what, look at how they've been rewarded since. And like, I mean, I really like that, you know, obviously with the amount of time we spend on software and like, I'm a person who was both like, I wrote a piece on Microsoft saying they're, they're finished, you know, like Google Docs and Chrome is, is taking over and the Nokia acquisition sucked. And then when they started pivoting, I like literally did the whole 180 as well. I mean, I didn't think the stock is going where to where it is today and all this. And you can say that about a lot of stocks, but I was very impressed with how they held their footing. And this is the never-ending debate in SaaS. Almost every biz that we talk about, and we got into this last, is some sort of assault on office as far as productivity and collaboration. So when I look at that, I mean, Adobe is a business that like, it was really expensive to buy Creative Suite. Very few people did. And I mean, they did create, you know, the PDF and like th that worked really well for them. But what actually the subscription biz massively expanded their TAM. It kind of kept them where they are from creative marketing and, and, and that type of standpoint. And here's the interesting thing about both those businesses, which we talked about. They don't survive without software being continuously delivered, because if everybody else moves to shipping the updates and the integrations in real time and you're not and you need to resell another copy, it's a structural business model problem. Because at the end of the day, not much has changed other than how you support it. It's just accounting. Whether you want to split the license and renewal into maintenance. I mean, I was joking about this with someone where I said they were criticizing on-prem. And I was like, what's an on-prem company that's not growing, but has very healthy EBITDA margins because of its uh, maintenance and renewal business? I'm like, it's a fucking SaaS. <laughs> like it's a, it's a no growth SaaS. I mean, it's just like, there, there you go. I mean, like, it's not very hard to get into it. Like that's how you value them. When, when they're acquired by private equity, they look at the existing install base and the maintenance re renewal fees and they jack them up. Like Oracle was buying stuff in the 15, 16% on the annual license and trying to get that over 20%. That's what they did. That was the business model. So like, yeah, when you look at that and you compare that to this content business and that like, there's been this seismic shift and, and things have changed. And you're like, there really hasn't. There, there is some degree has changed in terms of television series content and how that's produced the quality and how it's consumed initially as binging because we came from an era where there was just more demand than the supply. Because the media industry, particularly Hollywood, has kind of been like in television, has been a controlled supply game. And Disney is as a champion of it. They, they, have, they have an IP vault. You put it in, you pull it out. And like when they got forced to switch by DVD and start releasing their titles, like there was initial pushback on that. They're like, we don't want to release them all too much because we'll, we'll devalue it. They didn't envision everyone just lining up to buy every single Disney library and build it at home and continue to do that with every single movie to the point like you get a Finding Nemo doing 700 million or whatever it was in DVD sales at the peak of the market in 2004. That's where you look at it and you say, well, no. This is a company that generates 85% of its EBITDA from theme parks and ESPN, essentially speaking. You know, like there is a little bit in there when you can look, like, look at the overall rest of the pie, but like the studio has always been relatively, it's, it drives the events. And you've talked about it many times the flywheel. So a flywheel is a subscription business that doesn't show up on your credit card statement as recurring. Yeah, and I, I, which again is is where one of these things. When I walk away from the letter, I just feel like this is an example of somebody applying finance concepts in a way that don't apply correctly to business, like a way an invest a non-operator might. And that's and flywheel is a great example of something that gets abused and overused. And I've been at companies where they're those terms are used, and it's just everybody loves mental models and loves being able to think about parallels between different businesses to feel like they really are unlocking something. But yeah, if you look at the letter, first of all, there's two mentions of ESPN. Both of them are related to ESPN Plus. And that was, as you've pointed out, ESPN was the bear case for Disney for years, not the movies. The movies was, or, or even Netflix, really, it was really ESPN was the bear case. And that's- I still think, I still think they're very concerned about that. Right. But but this letter is not. They sort of wave their hands at you have more potential. I mean, and that's, you know, when I think about why I'm not more bullish on Disney, it's partly because 
you know, and I have, like I said, I have basically a 1% position. It's, there are real questions about what the promised land is for sports. I mean, the sports world is going to be struggling for a while. And I, I think demand to watch is going to snap back, but monetization might not. And a lot of these other places, I think there's- I didn't even watch the playoffs. LeBron James is horrible. Really, I just, those guys not watching, sorry, continue. The theme parks are probably going to be, I do think that's a pretty, you can bet 2022 theme parks are going to be really strong, but we're also probably still going to be suffering economic damage. Like there are reasons to be concerned about that. And this, I just, I think it's unclear to me. I walked away from this. It was basically, oh, don't bet on cinemas anymore and just put as much content as possible on your platform but it, it again it's like but there is a distinction between what you get from disney and what you get from netflix and netflix is easy and it's it has become the category winner and there's something to be said for that but we want to be careful i think you often quote the idea of what was it hastings who said i want to be hbo before hbo becomes netflix but if i'm disney i don't want to I want to control my fate, but I don't want to play either game. I want to play, I want to be Disney. Like you can be Yeah, they get compared Disney. very often. And like Netflix is essentially a cable bundle. That's what it is. It's aggregated so much content and it's localized globally. It's a global cable bundle. That's what it is. It just doesn't have the overhead of the, let's call it physical infrastructure. In terms of last mile, you know, laying the cable, the copper wire or the fiber. But other than the, other than that, everything else is in DTC, which people forget about. Like we still consume the content in the same way. When people talk about it, like like that's where you get into this whole lobe argument because there's a point in it. Like you've changed how things happen in software. I can't like when he's like, it's it'll be. It'll be sad to see the theaters go, but like the horse and buggy. Did you get, did you see that part? Right. right? Yeah. That's the, the and you're just like, finish. dude, I can't like how many people have hundred foot screens? How many kids can you fit into a living room to watch Aladdin? 20 for a birthday party comfortably. How big is your living room? Like, sorry, exhibition is part of it. And then there is the event experience for children. It's social. So yes, you can replicate it at home. You can do certain things, but it's a different environment because whether they're playing Roblox or they're watching Netflix or they're interrupted for their homework or they go outside, it's not the same when you watch something at home. You, you don't, what's the word? You don't connect with it. Like I, I've always been like a big, I'm an adult child when it comes to Disney content. I love musicals and I, I love the MCU. I sit and, and argue, uh, philosophical Thanos questions with my, you know, seven-year-old nephew. Right. <laughs> and like, he's like, well, actually the mind stone. And, and like, I'll be like, interesting point. I was not thinking about that from that frame. Like you connect to that when you watch the Avengers on the big screen. Yes. I, I've watched it on Disney plus and I've watched it repeatedly, like seven, eight times, certain scenes and certain, you like, like that's, that's Disney. You get the DVD, you'd watch it several times. And like, that's what they expect. But there's only so much to that from a genre content wise for an adult. It's not like, you know, watching Ted Lasso or Tehran or Queen's Gambit or Ozark or like these shows that have just recently come out, you know, that people are like, oh, have you checked this out? Or can you, have you checked that out? You know, or, or a documentary or Tiger King or something like it's, it's a whole different ballgame. So like, you're not like, they're not technologically obsolete on the big screen because people have 80 inch TVs at home. And that's, I guess, what, I guess what I'm trying to think of, I would say if I were looking at Disney's strategy, you know, and Rich Greenfeld comes to mind, I, I don't know where, what the name is from is now. I think we've mentioned before, but it was there's several South guys South. who are very talkative on all this stuff who are very interesting. I mean, what, uh, Hedgeye, right, uh, Greenfield, uh, yeah. enter uh, entertainment strategy guy. Yes. Uh, uh, and most of them, you know, like will will alternate like they are critical of Netflix. You don't really see as much criticism around Disney and everyone has a certain perspective. But like it's like Disney outperforms or anything. Hedgeye, Andrew has actually pointed out, I listened to a podcast with him where, where, you know, he made some good points on the topic. Greenfield, I think, is a huge Netflix bull. I think he's but 
So if I look at their strategy and say, all right, the whole Hulu, the different channels thing, I can see how that's confusing. But I, I mean, I guess what Loeb is saying is you need more Queen's Gambit or you need more Ted Lasso, which, you know, maybe Ted Lasso would have, it was R-rated, I guess, because of language. But like, I could see the argument that, oh, maybe Disney, but again, it's like, you're not, I guess they want more buzzy content coming out of Disney, but I'm just not sure... Is that what people are not going to sign up for? Or then you have more pricing. I'm just like, it sort of misses. And Hulu does have some buzzy stuff. Hulu has Fargo, which I can't watch because I don't think Hulu is available abroad. And it has shows like it's just unclear to me what. Well, the- I mean, Netflix was distributing that abroad because I when I was abroad, I watched Fargo on Netflix. I don't think they are anymore. I think Disney's- well, no, they're not anymore. But yeah. That's like that's an interesting point. So like that's where you go back to it. And look. Disney is widening down these distribution deals in Europe. So they're killing, I think with Sky, they just killed the Disney Channel. And they're still, they still have, I think, Fox, National Geographic, a bunch of some of the, what they've acquired. But like they're exiting those things. This is where you get into this. When you people talk about streaming, Disney has several hundred million Disney Channel subscribers overseas. What's the difference between that and Disney, Disney Plus? It's the difference between net and gross. You are compensated by the distributor via fees based on subscribers. That's a subscription business. And they've always sold it as a bundle. So you had to get ESPN, you had to get uh, ESPN2, you had to get Disney, Disney XD, Disney G, whatever. Like there's like a bunch of them. And they, they have, you know, from all the way to the top now, which is ESPN at like, you know, I think $11 or whatever is the, the carriage fee down to a few dollars for the Disney channel. But like that, all that together adds up probably to like, I don't know, 15 plus dollars a month and maybe more, maybe maybe 17 when, when you put them all together. So that is what you're replicating, except that you're now going to have to handle the billing, the hosting, hire software engineers, all that other crap, which the distributor, the cable companies or whoever it was that you're dealing with, satellite, et cetera, was handling. So the comparison is often made to Netflix, but Netflix had nothing. It was first sale doctrine, post office, reselling DVDs. And then it was, you have a deal with stars if you're a studio for certain content. And they decided to be like, hey, by the way, we'll, we'll just make your same deal available on the internet in this loophole. And that became streaming, OTT. But like that's still being watched on a television digitally. I mean, if, if you're now going over IP, it's the same thing if you're not using a coaxial cable to the cable box. so. If it's internet-based, like you've just got an app that's virtualized the box. So when you look at that and you say, when people look at, at Disney, Disney had a net margin profile business. It's actually interesting. If people want to take the time, they should look at what Disney, what after the Fox deal, they put international separately from DTC. So you can see what international generates in, in profit. And it's more like a licensing type of model, right? But that's just accounting. Okay, at the end of the day. And that's important when you look at the difference between a cash flow statement and an income statement. But people forget that Disney had a brand that has hundreds of millions of people around the world with the Disney Channel and their pay TV package and whatever programming was coming through it. And they were watching the movies and they're buying the DVDs. So what you've created now is that like you're you're essentially replacing where do I watch Disney's cinema content for the second, third, or fourth time for the big releases. This idea of I don't see why I would want to re- immediately release all like I, I like what they were doing in terms of splitting it, but like it's a margin profile game. You're not going to have, like you said, the same addressable TAM if I don't have to feed the same content. And you could argue that Netflix has a higher burden and that you're getting kind of free repeat money because you have kind of your controlling supply. And that's where you get into like, hey, Mr. Loeb, maybe it's a bad idea to ramp up content. And maybe it's a bad idea to abandon the theater because is maybe that's what Netflix wants. You don't see many people make this argument. I'm, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory or anything. If you look at Netflix's most recent shareholder letter, they're like, congratulations, Disney, for really committing to streaming. You know, when they talk about competition, they're like, it's good to see them like ramping it up and we welcome competition. But Netflix fought super hard with the cinema chains over the Irishman. And supposedly those talks went on and on and on, and they were really close and whatever. 
And then at the last second, Netflix just wouldn't budge on anything over 40 days or 45 days. And then it just, and like, I kind of look at that and I say, why would Netflix have left easy Scorsese money on the table? Why did they go through this whole thing? And it's just like limited release and whatever. And you come back to it and you say, well, Netflix doesn't want Disney to be this event business that has theme parks and this unique brand. Like they're really like, if you see how them talk, emphasizing animation and how they want to crack that and they're going to release a ton of animation, they want to basically be like, hey, we are the world's biggest distributor and we've got the cash flow coming in on 200 million people directly to us. There is no content you can't make. Like that's their mentality. So why are you special with this little library? Like they don't see it that way. They want to, they want to erode that value. That's where you get into this kind of brand connection where like, if I'm watching, if I can enjoy all Disney content the same way I can enjoy anything on Netflix, I think for Netflix, that's a victory because it's that little magic mystique that exists around that nostalgia element that, that Disney has where they can release something, not have to spend ridiculous amount of money trying to redevelop it. And it just makes money. It's, it's, it's a de-risked way of making content in the past. And if you get to the point where this, in this new content world where that's not possible, then what happens? That's where you, you worry about like, hey, what if like there's a generation that doesn't give a shit about the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or no longer looks at the fourth remake of Aladdin or Snow White and they don't care? That's when you're like, all right, well, then what? What, 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 what kind of content does Disney have to make? And what's Disney's advantage in, in bidding against Amazon and Apple or even Netflix when Monday Night Football comes up in 12 months? Now, we know they have ESPN and there's brand identity there and like they have the NBA to 2025 and they have certain college sports deals. So like it's in the interest of every sports league to stay connected with that brand. And they're doing stuff on the gambling side now and partnering up there, which makes sense for them. But that's where you look in the, on the content mystique and it's like, well, to maintain the mystique of all this thing, you need the roller coaster, you need the ride, you need the, you need the parks, you need the, the Disney store, you need the merchandise, you need the Halloween costume, you need the play, you need the musical, you need the cruise. And that all starts with, did you guys see uh, Avengers and Tony? And like, by the way, you know, like they're continuing this part of the story on Disney Plus, And then the next one comes out in the theater. It's tightly woven together. What do you think your seven-year-old nephew, because I can see the theme parks, right? Like getting to, I don't know if your nephew likes I mean, he definitely thinks Thanos had a point. Like he doesn't view Thanos as a very evil guy. But, like, it, but I mean, are we, we going to get into that? That wasn't where I was going, though. Because I, I, I just wouldn't be able to help guide that conversation. But I mean, going to the theater, because I know... Going to the theme park, I get it. Like you get to meet Mickey Mouse or whatever and putting on a costume. I get to be Jasmine or I get to be, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, this is where my Disney knowledge is rooted. But how much is the theater element, the theater experience, how important is that to- I don't, look, look some people have given me a hard time about it and I, I, I'm all for that. Transaction video on demand, TVOD is the future. I remember something called pay-per-view that's been around since the 1970s. I've watched concerts on it. Where people are now like live events. I'm like, fights. guys, I, yeah. I've watched fights and uh, concerts and and wrestling, WWF, for ages on pay per view and boxing. But I want to go to the theater and watch a movie on a super screen. And I want IMAX. I want Spider Man in 3D. You know, like these were the types of ideas. You know, early immersive. So that's where you went with that from an event standpoint. Is it critical? I don't know if you want to look into the psychology of like, do you, what's opening night like when a movie comes out? Like, can you create that in your basement? Yeah, I don't know. It, it's, I was, you know, it's like, ah, the new Bond movie's coming out. We're all, you know, it's all going to enjoy it at home. And by the way, get on social media, I get on Twitter and talk about that it. There was no Mandalorian buzz, but it's also right before the election. And so maybe nobody cares about it. I, I felt well, like Game of Thrones did it, right? We've seen TV shows do it. Breaking Bad at the end, these, these become Man. events. And that's where it's different in TV series. Some of them get really going. But what, what do all those have going for them is they were linear in nature. They, they control the release. They control the supply. And like, there's a very good argument that we end up back there. So when we get now into this point of like, if you want to move on to where, 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 how the model has changed in terms of profitability, Disney makes an event-driven 
special product like Aladdin. It's not 50 different shows coming out on Tuesday. And that's got its own PL. It's got top shelf talent. It's got people participating however they are. Like that's like that's Hollywood. MCU. You know, how much money has Robert Downey Jr. made off of, you know, these guys are getting points off of the gross. So you have to look at the cost structure is different for how you monetized a film. And the box office is that first recoup. And then everything else that kicks in afterwards is like kind of that flywheel element where they start recognizing profits. What they can make, they can turn a nice profit at the box office. They're happy. But Hollywood keeps like, you know, their hands in their pocket. And that's where maybe things are starting to change. But like, if you look at it from a profitability, they haven't been able to commoditize the content production costs. And I mean, Netflix obviously struggles with this because like, but they have a whole mix of spectrum. But Disney doesn't make the $1 million Blair Witch Project hit. Like HBO, HBO has always been near 40%, whatever you want to call it, the high 30s, but the margin business. Cable, television, advertising, always a structurally like pr- pretty much, you know, one of the most profitable businesses out there. Cash machine in terms of fees and what it generates and what is captured economically speaking. I mean, they literally tra- changed the way GDP was calculated to account for Seinfeld. $4 billion in residual income that's been generated since it went off the air. What's happened now, and which is interesting, by the way, when you look at these guys who are bidding on, on that library talent, how much does it take to make 180 episodes of a hit show today? At a show, once it's successful, you're talking like $15 million an episode now for new content, which is like, well, if you look at why HBO, a lot of people were unhappy with how Game of Thrones went, like costs balloon big time, particularly when you have people with different economic incentives bundling wise, like Amazon, who wants you to shop on, on online, and Apple, who wants you to buy a new iPhone and, and other subscription service to music and all these other things that they're selling in health and, and wearables and fitness. And they're willing to spend X, Y, and Z on content because that's just part of the cost that's spread out across something else that has much higher margins. It's, it, and it comes down to sort of a economics consumer surplus or where, what, like, what is there you're fighting for, right? Because I think if you're Disney and you're, or if you're Dan Loeb and you're saying everybody should go to this, you know, let's say $10 a month subscription model, or maybe it ends up being $20 a month once you bundle everything. What is that? Like who comes out ahead or who comes out behind as compared to the one movie every quarter? And then I advertise on ESPN to grab your attention there. And I get those carriage fees for Disney and ESPN. It's, yeah, I think it, I, I still, this is where I give a hard time, for example, which they threw in as an example is Spotify is ultimately what, what is the. Yeah, Spotify is like the worst example, right? All the music ever made since the beginning of time for $9 a month. And you're saying that like, you're, you're going to compare that uh, and a duopoly. Actually, you could say now there's Amazon music. There's a few others coming in, but contractual rights, that business, 25% gross margin. Like you saw what they're trying to do now with changing the algorithm to promote a song. So like that business is locked into the fact that they can't cut out the studios and the producers of content, the the musicians. So, and it's just like, so what's the, that's what's kept me out of Spotify is like, what's the end prize there? And so if you're with Disney, they're getting a lot of surplus on people loving their, content so much that they'll go to the theme parks. That's obviously where they capture a lot. They capture- I mean, Spotify's as, as edge is, is, is radio. Sorry, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, and because I replied to, I think his handle's Andy Biz Almanac, and he's shouted us out on Twitter, and I think he's a really yeah, great guy. good, good follow. Him. But I just, to me, it's, it's the question with Spotify. I think if anybody wins, they win, right? And I think that's the same argument for Netflix. And I think that's what Loeb's doing is saying, well, I know that I can bet on Netflix to win the watching TV at home game. But when you have an Amazon there or an Apple there, and we've, you know, you dropped the names of two Apple shows that I I assume you were saying Tehran positively. I know you turned me on to Ted Lasso. I really liked it. My wife likes Tehran. So like if Apple who just this is just nickels and the, under their couch for them. Like they really don't. And they can yeah, just. Yeah, but I don't, I'm not paying for Apple. It's bundled in with my, my most recent iPhone purchase. I, I they, I'm going to have a struggle depending on where we're at. But Apple, as good as Ted Lasso is, 
is not going to get $15 out of a month for me to watch Ted Lasso and, and if they drop Tehran. I, I mean, and you could say maybe, maybe you could say that's the psychology that Netflix has succeeded at because I've only watched two shows notably recently on Netflix as well. But I know when I open Netflix, it's got a lot of content. But what I'm, what I'm saying is that, and we are paying for Apple, I think five euros a month. So, but my point is that if they can, if Apple as sort of a side, it's not a side project, I guess, but it's something that's less core to who they are. If they can produce pretty decent content or acquire decent content, whatever, and then for Disney, is that the game Disney wants to play? If you have well-capitalized competitors like that and Amazon, ne ignore Netflix for a second. Is that really how, I think that's what I would, I don't know where so we That's are an unknown Netflix, where, we, where we don't know where those guys stop. Like here, So when I think about Apple now, I switched from Apple Music to Spotify, right? And like the amount of time I'm spending listening to music on streaming is very limited compared to watching videos. And, and I, I view the experiences completely differently, by the way. So I don't, I also think that analogy was bad for him, but I am now with their announced bundle thinking, all right, Apple music, Apple TV, and this amount of storage on iCloud versus Spotify at this price. And that's where you're like, all right, I'll switch back. And this is where you get into this whole game because Amazon, and I mean, as far as Apple continues to do that, if I'm going to have to buy a device and like, let's say I get my next back, if they keep providing a free year with a device purchase of any uh, of a certain level, they're happy campers, right? So Apple's got such, you know, a moat to, to it doesn't really have to do much here with the, with the throwing content. What I think is interesting is we're spending all this time talking about Disney and why did they bring this up here? They brought it up here. And by the way, Disney responded to this, right? Like they changed the organization structure to restructure the PL around what? Distribution. So internally, when you look at these media conglomerates, like, you know, the competing forces of, of like, well, as we were saying, when a piece of content is made, how do you recoup your costs if that's driving a decision? And if you have external financing on certain things and, 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 and partners, you know, the producers and everybody else who gets involved in, in the huge economy that is, you know, a Disney movie project. And this argument that maybe like internally streaming doesn't have its own separate PL. There's retention and added subscribers. And that's where you get into an interesting dynamic of him bringing it up here because who's going through the exact opposite scenario is Netflix. Netflix has, as of this quarter, 73 million subscribers in the United States and Canada. The pay TV market in the US and Canada is about 90 million households. And these are accurate numbers. I've done the homework on this extensively. And when you look at that and you think about it, that's about like 83, 84% penetrated. Now, here's the thing. Password sharing. That means that the traditional pay TV TAM is not as big as the addressable market that you can get into with OTT and, and, and app-based access. And you know they're giving you these you know on the premium. And if you look at Netflix's pricing, it's most people in the United States and Canada. If you look at the ARPU, are on the highest tier plan before this price raise. I think the the ARPU is thirteen forty. And the basic is $8. So that, that just tells you that almost everybody was on that $13 or $14 plan. So when you think about that, that's a mature business. So like Netflix is not producing a piece of content in the United States right now today that's going to incrementally grow the subscriber base that much. What they need to do is, is grow the revenue per subscriber, which means they need to raise prices, which they just did. It literally just like you, you may have accelerated a price hike by COVID because you pulled forward subscriber ads in, in the, the most mature markets and they know that they're going to see some churn and there's more competition. And right at this time, the competition is coming in. And Netflix wants to now change how they approach content, right? Like huge reorg internally, because I think they're, they're looking at what you just said, like Ted Lasso got buzz and they've, they've done these eight, nine figure deals with producers and all fine and dandy, you win some awards, you do this, but like if you don't have three or four shows that, and even though they're dominating, it's a really good question. Like if you look at the viewership, they're still dominating. Like what generates anecdotal buzz is different than what the data is showing. You know, Netflix is still winning. It's the land of giants, literally. They are winning in a landslide in terms of what's being consumed, but things have shifted somewhat. And I think they're looking at like, hey, 
if we're going to be able to continue to drive up the price, which they can, but they need to provide value relative to everybody else in the game. And that's where things get really, there's almost an argument for Netflix to take its prices up here now to make it much more difficult for the competition. How does it make more difficult? Well, if I've renewed a Netflix at this price and they're producing all this content and I go to Disney Plus and it's got the old shows of whatever from the movies and it gives me like, you know, one event every couple of months, that's going to be very limited in pricing power. You're, you're, I'm going to look at it and say, hey, you guys raise pricing, you're gone. And you know what? You may see far higher churn from me. I'll come in and I'll pay when I hit, when, when Hamilton is on and then I'm gone. I'll be back, you know, four or five months later, six months later, something gets to that level. That's where it's like, hey, I don't need, like, I don't need to be paying a data feed for the Disney DVD library. That's what it essentially amounts to right now. And Loeb's argument is like, you know, give me what Netflix is doing. And Netflix is giving you like roughly $20 billion in content spend. So where you look at where they're at today and that, and that's generating what for them on the bottom line, it hasn't generated that much. And that's where you're getting into and And it's more challenging. They need to raise pricing. Now they have pricing power. Like if you take like an internet all in Verizon, triple play, whatever, with every channel, it's like $250, $15 per box in a house that has several boxes and da, 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 da. it's expensive. Now, if you flip that around and, and, and someone tells you, hey, Netflix doesn't have pricing power at an ARPU, global ARPU of 1080, I'm going to be like, that's funny. But it is an interesting, your point about Netflix being the cable bundle, at some point it will, I, I don't know where that point is, but you think about it, Netflix, I might like it because of the documentaries and some of the foreign stuff. But if I'm in another country or if I'm just watching for the new buzzy shows, I may not care about the great Danish content or whatever. And you get to a point where at some point that is like your cable bill. It's just that it's all one channel that is kind of, and you've made the point about it's hard to find what next to watch and is the algorithm really that powerful and all this stuff. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't think $15 or whatever is their ceiling, but it, it will be interesting from the Netflix perspective. That's, I guess, their challenge is when they reach that point, have they captured the profits that make this whole shareholder bet worth it? Are they capturing that surplus? And I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. Yeah. I mean, what do we, because I read your piece, obviously, and it's, I think we've sort of discussed the Loeb letter, but like, where do you come out uh, on these two companies? Like, what do you, you don't have positions. So like, what do you, what are you watching for? What yeah. I mean, like I've been watching Netflix. I'm kind of curious about what's going on there. And I've been watching Disney as well. If you look at Netflix today, it's a $5 billion EBITDA business with like 200 million subscribers. If I was to model this business, so fully penetrated in the United States, fairly penetrated in Europe. And then you've got like, if you look at the pay TV market, they still, Netflix has got some room to go. They have a decent amount in Mexico, but Japan, they can, they can definitely grow a lot more. They're focusing on that. South Korea, there's like, I think 40 million pay TVs between South Korea and Japan. And I think those are obviously markets where they can probably double the, the current amount of subscribers. But when you look at China and India, where people get focused, I'm like, China's probably about like a third of the pay TV market globally. And it's just like own walled garden. And India, you know, will get you probably up to about 50%. Where like they have made some progress. And yes, they're taking a much lower ARPU in there, but they're focusing on content and they're playing the long game. But that's where you look at this business and you're like, structurally speaking, how much more challenging is it? Than what was everything bundled together before? Because like you unbundled and then you're kind of reaggregating by just the fact that you're distributing everything. That's all that's really changed. Like people look at it like, oh, is it your own content? Or like, oh, Netflix did they licensed that show. Well, okay, let's discuss how that works, right? And that's where things get interesting in terms of how content works. Like Netflix had early deals where they put that this was a Netflix branded show. They financed it and they have a studio develop it for them. And it's developed, it's a Netflix production. But they don't own the IP in perpetuity. That studio does and reverts back to them. And that you know changes the, you know, the upfront economics, let's just say. And the owner can, you know, monetize, like they can license House of Cards to someone else, you know, in advertising or whatever. Yeah. You get into those points where you negotiate those deals. That's when you go back to like the old Seinfelds and Friends and Office or the Big Bang Theory, these like 
huge library shows on the comedy side that people can, can continue to bid over. But when you think about how content is in aggregate created now, they, they want to actually produce and own it completely. They pay up the cash up front, at which point how they monetize that going forward is a different ballgame because it goes straight to streaming. It doesn't have these multiple different layers. And the other competitors versus Netflix are kind of running into this issue where you look at it and you're like, because in some cases, a studio as a partner is owned by somebody else and they're making a show for another person. Like, I'm not sure if, if it's Warner Media that produced Lasso for Apple. Uh, I'm not, I don't remember. But if you look at how that works in terms of who the, the producer of the content is and then who's just putting the stamp and like, it's an accounting thing. That raises the question of what's the terminal value of the content. So if you come to me like, oh, Netflix doesn't own this show after like so-and-so, it reverts and it comes off of Netflix. Well, where's it going to go? That that's opens it up for the Roku channel or ad-supported television or, you know, maybe Peacock will take it. And I'll be like, again, you know, is that show generating significant retention? Like what are, think of a Game of Thrones. Should HBO just be licensing that out to like the highest bidder and not focusing on its own distribution? And getting a $500 million deal out of it. When, when people talk about Seinfeld, Seinfeld, it's 2020 and you're talking 3.5 billion or whatever it is now in syndication fees since it went off the air. That's not DVD sales. That's not, that's not anything related. It's just the syndication rights. And Jerry and Larry you know, are, are getting 35% of that, right? Roughly speaking, a split between them, I think is how it works. But is there going to be a show like that and is there a terminal value in the content? Or are we going to go back to paywalls? Because if Netflix is investing heavily in this content, is it going to generate that kind of permanent retention? Or is there like this cat, let's call it this ongoing maintenance CapEx, the same way you would have with like a well or any type of business? Like what is like a running cost of content if you're just pure DTC business? Well, in the world of shortage of content where things were controlled, we saw how HBO did it. HBO, $5 billion to $6 billion business, affiliate fee-driven. It was earning a 40% margin, producing shit that made money. Pretty steady. Now you look at it and you say like Netflix is five times as big as that, but it's not generating remotely the profitability yet. Now, if you raise, like they just raised the price, that price raise in the United States, by my math, generates them about $1.3 billion in more fees annually than they were getting before without any incremental investment. Like I've done the math that for Netflix, if Netflix got its ARPU up $2, that's $10 billion EBITDA business, which is not crazy at let's call it just under $30, $13 globally. When you think that like this can get to 300 million subscribers probably. But like you look at that and you say, if that's where it gets, what's the market paying? And that's when you go back to well, do you get a Netflix multiple or do we get like a cable multiple on maturity? What, what's your EV to EBITDA? Like, I mean, right now, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Apple's over 20. So is, is, are we paying 25 times $10 billion? And then Netflix is 250 billion EV. But like- Which isn't far from where it is right now. Yeah, it's like about 230. So that's, but like, they're also not far from that ARPU. Like they just raised pricing from on, on like a 1080, at least in the US. They're heading there. but. This is where we don't, where we, what we can't answer is how much more content do they have to make? If Netflix just spent this money, is, are they just maintaining? Like, this is what's going on at the top of Netflix right now. I think this is the struggle in this whole space of like, how can, like, how can you get the, the, the HBO efficiency in this day and age? Is that possible? With the amount of TV being created, it hasn't been. But as others fail, if you believe that others are going to struggle far greater because Netflix can continue this for a little while longer and Apple, Amazon, Google have different aspirations, then a lot of other tri others trickle off. That's where you get into that difficult decision around Disney. I'm going to spend, I have to spend, I, I literally just need to figure out parks and ESPN because I'm not looking at this and saying there's a hundred, $200 billion media business in there because an event media business doesn't function the same way as basic cable, unless they can essentially get it there with, with Hulu, Disney, and ESPN. That's where you look at it and you say, all right, then I'm going to be looking at what? $20 for Netflix, $20 for, for, for that bundle, 
I'm at $40. What's left for everybody else? What's HBO? HBO is 15. They want to be a little higher. We're at $60. If I have those three channels. And there's, there's still live sports missing that I need to get from live TV. So like the rest is just going to be free ad supported. Like, and you're right back to there. And like, that's where you look at it and say, like, what's changed here is they are now doing all the spending as far as the distribution, which once you start looking at that margin profile and you say, well, does peak Disney DTC look better than peak Disney pre-DTC? And I think the argument is, is probably not. Because there's more competition from user-generated content. There's more competition from bundlers who are adjacent and are driven by different economic incentives. And cost escalation has been insane in the production of content, which has led to a scarcity as far as library content that people can battle over, which is what you're seeing with the 500 million for Seinfeld, 600 million for Big Bang, the sports rights deals, friends and office being pulled off. And that's where you look at these businesses being changed is that like, oh, office is a great asset, but wait, it's now a retention. It's not something that's monetized through syndication with somebody else. If that's the case, I want to give you a higher multiple, but then you got to change the approach where it's like, this is actually a cost. I got to amortize it differently. And like, that's where you think, well, you know what? Why are we going to get to a point where like some shit will come off Netflix that Netflix owns and it'll just go into like an ad supported environment? Like when people throw shade at Netflix, it's like, why don't they want to go into ad supported? Well, because they can't make as much money. They're looking at themselves as a cable company and they're looking at themselves probably at $20 a month times 300 million subscribers globally. And what, you know, what does that get you to? That's 6 billion call it 72 billion and 72 billion yeah for for them let's let's call it if they can get it get it there like a a 30% ebitda margin that's 21 billion dollars in cash generated and you know like you've seen the way these companies can be levered up in that situation and, and like that's where i think that's what they're doing i mean like that seems to be what like when you raise the price you're you're reorganizing the content talent structure who reports to who and who's responsible for what, you're basically saying, well, this is what's going to drive our economics going forward. When you look at that from Disney's standpoint, like in the, to competing against that, I think it's a different animal. There's a potential dangerous trap you can fall into if you if you try too much to be like Netflix, because there's no other model for Netflix with its presence globally, other than I need to be able to drive the average price up consistently at 5 6% compounded for the next decade. So- I feel like the way to maybe think about this and where the low bladder seems to be a little bit off is that for Disney, this is all how do you defend your IP and your carriage fees and everything? Like, how do you recreate that as close as possible to allow you to continue playing offense with the rest of your ecosystem, which is the event media, as you put it, and theme parks, right? And so for them, it's not so much about how do we build a new Netflix? It's how do we make sure that Netflix doesn't eat away at our connection with the audience? And to do that, we have to realize that people are moving off cable. And so the DTC kind of preserves that. And we can still recreate some events to keep people excited. But it's really more about how do we maintain that channel? And then we can stay offense. Whereas Loeb is saying, no, no, no you got to go on offense here. And it's if they're not a great running team, don't tell them to run the ball. Tell them they need to continue to play to the passing game or whatever. Like you can pick the sport and the facile analogy. But that to me seems to be where we're kind of landing here with the acknowledgement that regardless, Disney has a tough game to play and Netflix does too, for that matter. And the fact that the market has rewarded Netflix so far doesn't mean that the game going forward is going to be all that easy. Does that sound like a... Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think that's a, an excellent point. I think like you could sit there and just be like, you know, dumb it down to a third point and be like, there was no Netflix. Disney was a global brand with hundreds of millions of subscribers. Were they getting them on a gross or net basis? Does that really matter for anything other than let's call it data insights, which we can get to as a, as a point? Not really. And is the accounting typically what you paid a higher margin for. Yes, it was. Licensing and upfront profit 
is something that is compensated. It's it's a de-risk structure that that dealt with the hands in your pocket that is the Hollywood industry. We talk about like software engineers and typical employees at, at like as well as the jobs are these companies that scale like Google and whatever. They're not getting points off of revenue on AdSense. It's the same thing with the NFL. Like they raised the, the TV deal and, and the players union maintains its position. NBA, I mean, look at the power the players have today. So the, the creators, uh, the production of, of this, let's call it scarce IP, be great. What, what essentially we can say is that, that D- Disney has done very well is they added a lot of IP that, that they got in theory, uh, not even in theory, like uh, objectively a, a bargain on. That IP was undersold to them or the counter argument is enhanced by their ability to distribute that IP at scale globally because they already had a channel to plug it into. They have their exhibitor partners. They have the resources to develop and create. They have the marketing muscle and the brand identity and the theme parks and the presence you know, around the world and the established IP legacy, if you want to call it that. So like, t- they were able to bolt on. And they're great storytellers. That's where you look at like, where it's hard to look at this and be like, is storytelling at an exceptional level something that can be algorithmically nailed down? And that doesn't seem to be the case because content will always have some level of subjectivity to it. If you can reinforce, like you can maybe find out content you like and feed, feed, feed people more of that. And that seems to be what Netflix is trying to do on like the entire planet. And like the argument is, okay, like let's say can Disney, but Disney doesn't monetize the same. So like I was arguing this with, with someone who was talking about the shift to DC, DTC benefiting because you collected data. And it's like, it's not like Disney hasn't been collecting data, right? They may not have the individual billing information, of the person in the house, but when you come to their parks, they have information. You you know they have surveys. They, they they hire agencies who have been collecting data on everything that they make. Like they've been doing market studies on on all kinds of things. So if I have a relationship with you, it's how do I monetize it? And if all of a sudden I've got you your billing information for Disney Plus, does that going to increase my ability to get you to buy a cruise? Or was my ability to get you to buy a cruise more linked to your family showing up at the park or more linked to you enjoying my films in the theater because you identified with them and that I don't establish the same connection with you when you're sitting at home? Because, I mean, they've had membership clubs. They've had all these things. So that's where you kind of like look at it and you're like, is that even a game that they're capable of, of like, is it, is it a game where like people like the data, the data, the data, the data, the data. And it's like, all right, I get that data, but in exchange for that data, and like, you've seen it, like Hulu's tech stack is not, it's not Netflix's. And like in exchange for that data, I have to do distribution. Well, I've got to do customer service. I mean, I read this crazy thing about like the, it's like MLM. I don't know if I forwarded right. it to you other people, yeah, I, you but you're just like, Slack. yeah, you you now have to be involved with connecting yourself. What brands have historically had the most negative relationship with their customers? The cable company. Correct. And what are you if you're a subscription service globally that delivers all your content to the point where the cable company is now just the internet and it just saw it's on? You're the freaking cable company. Hopefully it doesn't break down, but like it becomes one of these things where why are you billing me this? Why are you raising my price? Because I'm permanently acquired as a customer. That's where Disney has like completely dodged that negative brand identity. They sit as one step back and you like it, you're bu- they're bundled in. And that's where Apple's doing it. And that's where Amazon's doing it. Because Prime goes up and I don't look at it as, oh, you know, you're billing me for the $1 billion you're spending on Lord of the Rings again. It's different economics. You have to hire engineers. You have to deal with the internal struggle on the PL. How do you compensate creators? Oh, you, this was viewed this many times. You get this. No, I don't. I don't want to be paid per stream. My deal is points up front. And like, it used to be pretty clear. Box office did this. You're paid this way. And then the syndication deal, whoever owns this, screen actor gills, typical royalties, those are set. And if you didn't get a cut, it's done. Now you're changing that, right? It's like, well, there is no, there is no future stream to monetize. So everybody who is in the production of the content is going to be like, I need to get paid more up front. So you've changed the cash flow dynamics of the game. Because let's say we created something with immense value. 
Now it's like, what's the immense value on it? It retained the customers and it generated a certain level of buzz or Amazon may measure it as like it generated more sales e-commerce wise, or it allowed them to raise the price of Prime on 400 million people by $2. That's how they, me- they measure it. Disney is not measuring it that way because they're not in the shop. They're in, they're in the events business. So like they now need to be like, well, we need to charge you more at the park. And that's what they've done. If you look at how, where the profit growth really came from is the, the price of going to Disney went up significantly over the last 20 years. And they were all and, and the price of, of sports, ESPN at the core bundle for which a lot of people didn't watch the sports, but they all, everybody paid for it. You know, it went up. So like th- those were things that like they, they locked in and that gave them cash flow to reinvest in, in the IP that they did. So. Yeah, I, I think it's something that when you read or when you read a thesis like that, you're not going to get, I mean, they don't have an hour discussed it and whatever. You're just like, all right, you came in pre-COVID as an activist, COVID has hit, and you want the stock, you want to move the stock. <laughs> you know, you're looking like you, 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 there's nothing for you to say about parks uh, right now. There's nothing for you to say about sports right now. You can just sit there and say, hey, now is the time to re- like cut the cord forcibly from this dying industry that was the box office and accelerate and don't don't try to be penny wise dollar foolish by charging $39 for Mulan because Mulan for free is going to get you brand engagement that is you know long term much more valuable now that's that that may be a good point if you have no choice right now in the pandemic but that's not also a realistic point. If Mulan has distributor deals in, in Asia, it's got production partners. If you've got like, you're going to be going out in the box office there and, and like you're going to putting it on free TV and it's going to get ripped here. You, the whole idea behind it was to have something that's a hit in China. And, and if you know it's already not a hit, then like, why don't you just recoup some of your money? And then like it's free in two months. It's literally money left on the table. And that's where you get into, well, how much have you spent? Like, what, well, like, you know, how do you run your bottom line when it's that? So I don't think that Disney has any incentive to change what they were doing with the way they weave content together and what they what they want to put on plus, what will go in the movie theater, maybe the windows shrink, and maybe they approach that differently. But I think the stock is complicated. I really do, because I think Netflix kind of has an easier going because they can probably continue to raise that price by doing what they're doing in terms of like the They've created, when you talk about that whole, you know, criticizing Zoom and like Zoom has become a verb. And, you know, when you think about watching just something, you know, on television, when you want to get around to getting to video, it's like watch Netflix. If Amazon and Apple are going to sit there behind them with, you know, some level of decent content, it's not going to be pretty for everybody else. Like even HBO, you just really wonder how long they can keep it up. Because at some point, HBO essentially pivot to creating content for one of those three. Is that something where Netflix looks at it and is like, I just want the brand and I, I roll the brand in, you know, HBO original. Is that because like that's where you like you're like, does that thing still have the, the key identity? Now, like they've got the subscribers now, but they're changing the profile economically like them. Maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they should just stick with you know who that they who they have and generate the cash as is now and, and wait for we'll wait for the to come out on the other side. Because I don't think there's going to be that much value in in half a dozen streamers with the relationships with the consumer. You're just not going to connect with them that way in the world of Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and Pinterest and Twitter and, you know, everything else in between. Yeah. All right. Let's let's wrap it there. I think I think even the big names should be cautious to just point at an end goal. I, I think you put this in your piece, but I think it's right point at a multiple and say, I want that without including all the hard work and all the context it takes to get you to that multiple. So. And it's difficult for them too, dude. I mean, like they don't, Amazon and Apple are not out there advertising when we'll stop or how we're going to measure this. Yeah. Right? No, I mean, that's, it just, every time I think about this, I think about Tesla and how if the market is going to give you a lot of money to do what you're in, I know that it's not a one-to-one, but like, You've got a well-capitalized competitor that the market is happy to give money to, and or you've got a behemoth coming into your market. They don't have to be better than you to make it difficult for you to succeed. And so, yeah, I think there's that's where for Disney, don't try to play in the field where everybody is competing with you. Try to think of how to 
change the rules so that they're in your favor. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's where, and that's where I come kind of come back. I'm like, don't be stupid with your content. You still have the brand identity. Let people continue to to crave that Disney content because I'm not craving anything on Netflix. It's different type of content, and it's a different type of experience. If you replicate that completely similar for me, like there isn't enough time in the day. You're just going to be spending more money to something that you probably could have achieved connecting with the kids already and focus on other ways to make money that, that you've done very well over time and, and driving that, driving that engagement. Like I make it like, make it what it is, which is it's always been unique. You're singing the songs and the music and you're dressing up in the costumes and, and like you're connecting to that. Like Netflix hasn't cracked that yet. Like if they get really good at animation and they get a couple hits here and there, they're going to obviously get excited about that argument. And who's like, if, if Netflix has one or two animation hits, who, who is the market going to criticize? Disney. Like it's instantaneously going to be, oh, they've got a Netflix problem as, as how it's framed. And we've seen how framing can be, you know, such a challenge in, in stock investing. Like if something gets framed a certain way for a while, it's tough to change that. All right, we have spoken. This is the way. Good stuff, Akram. Should be fun to see how this plays out. All right, dude. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish a new episode every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd be really grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you again for listening and see you next week. All right, Akram, good morning. We're talking Disney again. Good morning. It's a big day for us here. <laughs> yeah, this is this will be coming out after election day, but this is our Daniel, personal I love program. I just want to say if I win today, free Disney passes for everyone. <laughs> now go ahead. Well, and if you if you lose today, Disney's gone. There's no Disney. I know, that's, let's I, what is losing, Daniel? Are you saying that he's going to get more votes today, but then he took those votes from places I don't know? We don't know. And where is he anyway? Is that, have you seen my crowds? Disneyland isn't that packed. That's, that's just true. That's true. Disneyland. No lie, Daniel. Fake news media doesn't want to hear about the 60,000 people who came to see me out yesterday. <sighs> so, listeners, we hope that this will all be updated and we'll all have forgotten about this campaign by the time we're listening. But I do not hope you ever forget about anything, but let's continue.